Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War, where I look at Canada through the First World War. Before I begin, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. All my patrons get a shout out at the end of each episode. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday, and From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. If you want, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com, and you can also find me on Twitter. Just search for Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. You can find me on Instagram as well. Just search for Bairdo37. Over the course of this podcast series, I won't look in-depth at the various regiments and battalions that took part in the war often. Of course, with the second episode of the show, I feel I can't continue without looking at the first group of soldiers to go overseas, and a regiment formed in direct response to the war. The regiment still exists to this day and has received 39 battle honours. It is the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, also known as the Princess Pats, or simply the Patricia's and I'm looking at its formation at the start of the war. I won't be looking at its service through the war, as I'll be touching on that extensively in my episodes on battles and other incidents, so this episode is more to show you how quickly things came together, and it will cover from August 6, 1914 to January 6, 1915, when the regiment became the first Canadian infantry unit to land in France. To look at the history of this regiment, we first need to look at the man who created it, Captain Andrew Hamilton Galt. Born in 1882 in Kent, England, he would attend McGill University in preparation for taking science at Oxford. Instead of taking that route, he would join the 2nd Royal Canadian Dragoons to serve in the Boer Wars. While there, he would earn the Queen's Medal with three clasps. Upon his return to Canada, he was made the Consul General of Sweden in Canada in 1909, and served as a member of the Montreal Board of Trade from 1911 to 1913. Prior to the start of the war, Lord Strathcona would raise the Strathcona's horse, and inspired by this, Galt would follow suit at the outbreak of the war, offering the Canadian government $100,000 or $2.2 million today to help raise and equip an infantry battalion for service overseas. This would make the Patricias the last privately raised regiment in Canadian history. The first offer Galt made to Minister Sam Hughes was to create a cavalry unit, which was Galt's preferred arm of service, but Hughes would convince him to create an infantry unit instead. The government would temporarily accept the offer on August 6, 1914, and the Montreal Gazette would report that the regiment was created by Galt, describing him as the first Canadian in the present war to follow in the footsteps of Lord Strathcona. It also speculated that the regiment would be known as Galt's Light Infantry. The regiment was officially authorized four days later on August 10th with the charter signed by Minister Hughes. Working with Lieutenant Colonel Francis Farquhar, the military secretary to Canada's Governor-General, the Duke of Connaught, Galt made the decision to recruit men who had military experience but were not attached to a militia unit at the time. This decision was made because it would allow for the quick departure of the regiment to Europe. It is from the Governor-General that the regiment would receive its name. His daughter, Princess Patricia of Connaught, 
was widely known for her support of the wilderness and people of Canada. Colonel Farquhar approached the Governor-General for permission to name the regiment after his daughter, and the Princess was apparently delighted by the idea and approved of it. She was not only serving as the namesake of the regiment, she would also design the regimental flag and make the first flag by hand, and she would serve as the regiment's first Colonel-in-Chief, a role that she would have until her death on January 12, 1974. The flag she designed would become known as the Rick Goddamn Do, and the regimental song referencing it stated, quote, Our Rick Goddamn Do, pray what is that? Twas made at home by Princess Pat. Tis red and gold and royal blue, that's why we call our Rick Goddamn Do. End quote. As for how the flag got its name, it's not quite known, but it's believed it's based on a Gaelic phrase for cloth of our mother. The original Rickadam Dew would survive the war and stay in service until 1922 when it was replaced with a replica. The original also featured several bullet holes in it. According to legend, the soldier entrusted with carrying the standard was killed by a shell. Later in the battle, another Patricia's member was carrying the standard. He then stood on the edge of a trench to alert the regiment to regroup and began waving the flag. The Germans then started shooting at it, not hitting the soldier but putting several bullet holes in the fabric. Another, or possibly more likely story, is that an officer got drunk and fired his service pistol in the air one night in the trenches, hitting the standard. The light infantry part of the name came upon the suggestion of Galt, who in his service during the Second Boer War had heard the term and felt that it gave the impression of an irregular force that he liked. Wasting no time, Farquhar and Galt moved quickly to build the regiment. On August 11th, the day after they received the authorization, an aggressive recruitment campaign was started. The campaign benefited heavily from the huge patriotic spirit running through the country, which I touched on in the last episode. By August 18th, 3,000 applicants had been recruited, of which 1,098 would be selected. Of those, 1,049 had served in the Boer War, or the British Army at some point. Farquhar was also chosen as the first commander of the battalion. And there was no regiment made up of untrained volunteers. The original members had valuable combat experience, and in the words of the original history of the regiment, the original members were, quote, prospectors, trappers, guides, cowpunchers, prizefighters, farmers, professional and businessmen, above all, old soldiers, end quote. The Ottawa Citizen would report on August 11th that, quote, Every man of the battalion will be either a South African veteran or a man who has had active service in the Imperial Forces. Volunteers are coming from all over Canada, and the battalion, it is said, will be one of the finest which has ever marched forth in war, end quote. The average age of the regiment, owing to the military experience in the Boer War by so many, was 36 years old. It was estimated by the Ottawa citizen that half of the regiment had been in the Boer War, and one man named Private E. Edwards of Toronto was interviewed about his experience and he replied that he had served in the Boer War with the Gordon Highlanders. He then added that six other men in the regiment had served with that regiment as well. The regiment also featured several birdmen, as they were called, but what we would call pilots today. The Legion of Frontiersmen joined up as a body, as did the members of the Edmonton Police Pipe Band. The makeup of this first regiment of soldiers was about 65% English, 15% Scottish, 10% Irish, 
and the rest made up of other nationalities. One individual who helped raise volunteers was R.B. Bennett, the future Prime Minister of Canada from 1930 to 1935. He also wanted to accompany the Calgary soldiers of the regiment himself, but since he had no military training, the only position he could occupy was paymaster. Bennett would have a long talk with Colonel Farker, and instead made arrangements for recruitment, and he would help to share the cost with other wealthy individuals from Montreal. On August 12th, the Edmonton detachment of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, which amounted to about 300 people, were getting ready to leave. That night, 130 left for Calgary and would proceed to Montreal while the remainder would go to Ottawa. On August 15th, the 300 would be gathered together in Ottawa. The captain of the Edmonton Regiment was Jay McKinnery, who had served in the Boer War. And it was said he went straight to the recruitment office and enlisted. One man, identified as only King, walked 90 miles to enlist in the regiment, while others were said to have walked as much as 100 to 120 miles. The Edmonton Detachment, like so many others in the war, quickly found that Canadians were highly generous when they had that patriotic spirit. The Edmonton volunteers had no blankets when they enlisted, but the Hudson's Bay Company in Edmonton supplied everybody with the blankets to use. A large quantity of tobacco and pipe was also provided for all of the men in the detachment. Two days later, 63 residents of Saskatoon left the city to travel to Ottawa after a brief stopover in Winnipeg to meet with other troops for the regiment. Before they left, huge crowds wished them well, and the Saskatoon Daily Star writes, quote, An immense crowd followed the parade from the armory, and by the time the corner of 20th Street and 2nd Avenue was reached, the street was packed with most of the population of the city. As the men marched up the main street, the windows in all of the buildings were filled with interested people and crowds of men and women on the street corners and on the steps of stores and banks cheered the soldiers as they passed. End quote. Joining the Saskatoon men would be ten men from Prince Albert who had enlisted with the regiment. The same day the troops were leaving Saskatoon, the first troops for the regiment were arriving in Ottawa with more groups coming in over the subsequent days. The Ottawa Citizen reported that Colonel Farker expected the men to be mobilized within the week and ready to go overseas. Tailors in Ottawa were quick to get the work on uniforms, and the Ottawa Citizen would report, quote, A number of city tailors worked Saturday night making changes in the uniform so they would fit well and their splendid appearance shows the effects of this work. The men have also been issued with great coats, end quote. On August 23rd in Ottawa, the regiment held a formal parade and Princess Patricia would present the regiment's standard. The flag she designed would be carried in every action that the regiment was involved in during the First World War. She would tell the regiment upon presenting the flag, quote, I have great pleasure in presenting to you this color which I have worked myself. I hope it will be associated with the history of what I feel is distinguished corps. I shall follow the fortunes of you with all intense interest and wish every man good luck and safe return. End quote. Colonel Farker would respond, quote, In the name of every officer and man, may I express the great gratification we feel at your Royal Highness' presence here. The fact that you should have attended the first parade of the battalion and that you should have been accompanied by the Duchess and Princess Patricia gives us the touch and honest pride and confidence which does so much to make up the spirit of the corps in any regiment. End quote. 
The governor general, the Duke of Connaught, was also on hand and would tell the troops, quote, It affords me great pleasure to be present and to think that the first parade of the battalion is a church parade, end quote. Many prominent individuals, apart from the members of the royal family, were also on hand for the parade, including cabinet ministers from Parliament and even Sir Robert Borden, the Prime Minister of Canada. At the time, Canada was dealing with wartime shortages as the war effort ramped up, and in order to obtain the weapons for the regiment, several sources were used. The private soldiers would carry the 303 Ross rifle, while non-commissioned officers and officers would carry the 1914 45M1911 pistol. As a reward for organizing the regiment, Galt would be commissioned as a major in the regiment, and his wife would join him overseas, choosing to serve in the British Red Cross. On August 28th, the regiment would leave Ottawa and boarded the SS Megantic in Montreal. The regiment would only make it to Lévis, Quebec, due to increased German activity in the Atlantic Ocean. On August 31st, the Ottawa Journal announced that the publicity was given as the reason the Patricias were disembarking in Quebec and the worry of the Germans knowing the movements of the ship through the news reports. It was then announced that it was unlikely the public would know when the ship decided to finally set sail for Europe. While in Lviv, the regiment would begin to test the Ross rifle, and they would issue the first report of the suitability of the rifle for combat, which would later be found to be unsuitable for trench warfare, due to its lack of primary extraction, its length, and the close chamber tolerances, along with the poor quality ammunition used. Within three years, the rifle would be removed from service, but the regiment would abandon it within only a few weeks upon their arrival in England. On September 27th, the regiment would finally leave from Quebec on the Royal George, bound for England. During the trip overseas aboard the Royal George, the regiment would organize a concert and theatre programs to help pass the time. The regiment would arrive at their camp at the Salisbury Plain in England on October 18th, stationed at Bustard Camp near Stonehenge. Before long, British authorities saw that the Patricias were a well-trained unit and was capable of going into the field already. The regiment also enjoyed not being under the control of the Canadian government. Lieutenant Hugh Niven, one of the regiment commanders, would write later that the regiment did not trust Minister Sam Hughes, and they did everything they could to stay out of the control of the minister. He would say, quote, We were Canadians, but we were different. We do not train with the other Canadians in Canada, or as a matter of fact did we train with Canadians in England. We were a battalion apart. End quote. Now the following information relating to dates comes from the regiment's war diary. And while I won't go into detail on all the days, I will look at various days that give a glimpse into the life of the soldiers through the rest of the year. On November 4, 1914, the regiment was inspected by the King and Queen of England, as well as Lord Roberts and Lord Kitchener. While that event would make the men feel on top of the world, the next day they were right back to digging trenches and marching. According to the Edmonton Journal the following day, Lord Kitchener described the Princess Pats as fine fellows, and he would say after seeing so many metal ribbons on the soldiers from the Boer War, quote, now I know where all my old soldiers have got to. End quote. In a letter published by the journal on November 5th from a soldier who was not identified, it says, quote, We are in camp once more and very comfortably situated. All our tents have wooden floors in them, and each man has five blankets and a rubber sheet, so we are not in any way neglected. 
end quote. After speaking with Colonel Farquhar, meeting with Lord Kitchener, the soldiers related the following quote. We motor into Salisbury in the afternoon and do a little shopping and come back about 11 and really enjoy ourselves as the roads are perfect. The colonel has just brought us news that a number of gentlemen in London have offered their motor cars for the use of our officers while we're in England. End quote. On November 14th, the regiment was given orders to move to Winchester, and on November 16th, the unit joined the 80th Brigade of the British Expeditionary Force at Winchester. On November 25th, the regiment was inspected by Major General Snow, who commanded the British 27th Division. And on December 4th, the regiment moved on to the firing range, where they would see the Ross rifle replaced with the Lee Enfield rifle, which many of the soldiers were quite happy about. On December 20th, the regiment left with the rest of the 80th Brigade at the port of Southampton, heading towards France. The next day, the regiment left the dock at 1.25pm through rain showers for the entire day. And upon their arrival on December 21st in France, the Princess Patricia's Light Infantry became the first Canadian infantry unit on the battlefield, and were only beaten there by another Canadian group, the 1st Canadian Medical Corps. By landing in France, the Patricias were the first and only Canadian Infantry Regiment to serve in the theatre of war during 1914. On December 24th, the troops spent Christmas Eve following an officer who did not know the way to Blaringham Village, which took many hours to reach despite only being a distance of seven miles. Upon arrival at the village, they were told that the brigade headquarters was two miles back along the road they had just been on and it took until 6 a.m. for all of the regiment troops to finally reach their billet station. Corporal Gordon Carling would describe Christmas Eve as such, quote, Rain and sleet enveloped the whole front, and at best our Christmas Eve was miserable enough. None of the boys were downhearted, though, and we made the best of things, end quote. Christmas Day was not a day of celebration for the troops. They spent their day overhauling packing of transports, and with no Christmas comforts available, a journalist would send a wire stating that the troops had engaged the Germans, which had to be taken back by the Ottawa Journal on January 6, 1915, and it would state that it received a special cable from London which stated, quote, Your correspondent has just returned from a visit to northern France. The Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry Regiment has not yet been in action. They are now billeted about 15 miles from the firing line, but will shortly move into the reserve trenches and should see fighting soon. More wasted cable tolls, we contend. End quote. Corporal Carling would relate later in a letter home, quote, We spent Christmas Day in support. End quote. Back home in Canada, the Saskatoon Daily Star reported on December 29th that the first reinforcements for the Princess Patricia's had been requested, amounting to 10% of the battalion's strength. The paper speculated that this was because either the regiment had suffered losses or that it was about to engage the Germans. We know now that it was because the regiment was about to face the Germans for the first time in early 1915. The newspaper reported, quote, The orders asked the commanding officer of troops here to nominate the battalion, a captain, two lieutenants, five sergeants, a bugler, five corporals, five lance corporals, and 109 privates, end quote. On January 1st, as the new year dawned, the troops were inspected by Sir John French as the rain poured down on them all day. On January 6, 1915, the regiment entered the trenches for the first time at a location called Dickey Bush by the British troops. 
With this momentous day for the troops, I will relate what the diary said directly. Quote, Lack of boots much felt many men marching with no soles at all to their boots. Arrived at Dickey Bush and rested until 5 p.m. When the right half battalion under Major Galt took over the two sections on the right, time was lost owing to no guides having been provided by the French. Taking over completed at midnight without incident, trenches were found to be in a very waterlogged condition. No braziers and few dugouts. Distance from German line 40 yards on our left, 200 yards on our right. According to the Regina Leader Post and a cable from Europe, a British officer stated that the Patricias had splendid discipline in France. The officer would state, quote, This front has become a battle of inches, and the slightest advance made out of the general scheme endangers our whole front. We were afraid the Canadians and their enthusiasm would carry out the rush tactics they employed so effectively in South Africa, but which would be fatal here. But the Patricias, rank and file, have shown themselves steady and their officers well-trained. Thus began the regiment's stay in France, which would see them participate in some of the most important battles of the war, including Vimy, Passchendaele, Canal du Nord, and the Somme. Along the way, two soldiers would earn the Victoria Cross, and the regiment would receive 19 battle honours. Of the 5,000 men who would serve with the regiment over the course of the First World War, 1,300 would never return home to Canada. Each episode of Canada's Great War, I'm going to look at a soldier who served in the First World War. It may be a regular soldier who never made headlines, or a noted individual who gathered several medals. For this episode, considering it's the Princess Patricia's, I choose to look at Lieutenant Colonel Francis Douglas Farker, the first commanding officer of the regiment. He was born on September 1, 1874 in England, and graduated from Eton College, where he was fluent in English, Somali, French, and Mandarin. He would go on to serve in the Boer War, receiving the Distinguished Service Order and the Legion of Honor. During that war, he would serve with the Coldstream Guards. The brother of an officer in the Coldstream Guards would write about him following his death, quote, Very early in his military career, he gave up on the many amusements and distractions of the circle in which he was placed, and devoted himself heart and soul to the more serious side of his profession. In South Africa and in Somaliland, he sought brave enjoyment across the world to find, alas, the glorious grave which George Herbert writes of, like so many of his friends and contemporaries on Belgian soil. End quote. In 1905, he would marry Lady Evelyn Helly Hutchinson, the daughter of the Earl of Donnemore. In October 1913, Farquhar would come to Ottawa to serve as the military secretary to the Duke of Connaught, and within the capital he quickly became a popular figure in official and social circles. On March 21, 1915, at 2.30 a.m. during the Battle of St. Eloy, Farquhar was mortally wounded. He would be buried the following day next to the other officers of the Princess Patricia's, as per his request. According to news reports, five staff officers and 20 soldiers of the regiment were being shelled by the Germans during the service. On March 22, 1915, the cable came into the newspapers of Canada stating, quote, Colonel Farquhar is dead. Lieutenant Martin and Patricia is dead. Same regiment lost three killed and 20 wounded. End quote. Major Galt would write to the Ottawa Journal stating, quote, 
He fell by a stray bullet at night while inspecting some earthworks. The question of the command of the battalion is now admirably settled in the appointment of Buller, and he will make a splendid commanding officer. End quote. Lieutenant Newton would go into greater detail, stating that Colonel Farquhar had been shot in the chest by a bullet while going through wire entanglements and suffered for three hours before he died. On March 23rd, Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden would speak to the House of Commons, stating, quote, It is with deep and unfeigned sorrow that we have heard the news of the untimely death of all the able men who have filled the position of Secretary to the Governor-General of Canada I do not know of anyone who has performed his duties more proficiently or who has more thoroughly endeared himself to the Canadian people than did Colonel Farquhar. I know that all the honourable members of the House will join with me in an expression of our deep sorrow for the loss in which the Empire is sustained and a message of sympathy to those whom he has left behind. End quote. On March 29th, a service was held in London attended by his wife, Major Gould, Major Meary, and Sir Ronald Lane. On June 22, 1915, the London Gazette reported that Farquhar had been mentioned in dispatches prior to his death. To honour his sacrifice, British Columbia honoured him by naming Mount Farquhar, which is located at the British Columbia-Alberta border for him. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from the PPCLI Museum, Canadian Armed Forces, the PPCLI War Diaries 1914-1919, Wikipedia, Montreal Gazette, Edmonton Journal, Calgary Herald, The Ottawa Citizen, Saskatoon Daily Star, Windsor Star, Winnipeg Tribune, Veterans Affairs Canada, The Canadian Virtual War Memorial, and The British Empire. Thanks, we'll see you again next time. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.